read Ruth, Ruth 2. So you could turn to that in the Bibles that you have with you. Ruth chapter 2. And before I start, um, I'll briefly pray for Steve, and then I'll read that chapter. <coughs> Heavenly Father, thank you for the chance to consider your word, Ruth 2, and the theme of fighting fear. Lord, please be with Steve. Strengthen him, enable him, inspire him by your spirit. Help us to learn. Help us to be ready to listen and learn. In Jesus' name, amen. So Ruth chapter 2. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out and entered a field and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, who does that young woman belong to? The overseer replied, she is with the Moabite. She is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, My daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field, and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting, and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you, and whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, Why have I found such favour in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favour in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come over here, have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men, Let her gather among the sheaves and don't rep reprimand her. Even pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered, and it amounted to about an ephah. She carried it back to town, and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave what she had left over after she had eaten enough. Her mother-in-law asked her, Where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, he has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead, she added. That man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. Then Ruth the Moabite said, he even said to me, stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all my grain. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it will be good for you, my daughter, to go with the women who work for him, because in someone else's field you might be harmed. So Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvest were finished and she lived with her mother-in-law. 
Thank you very much, Casey. Um, so, I've had, uh, I've had modest ambitions so far. Um, simply, I wanted in the first session to, to kind of persuade us that fear is an issue in our lives. Uh, some of us didn't need persuading of that. Um, others made a little bit more nudging uh, to be persuaded that uh, fear does exist uh, in our lives and, uh, uh, and maybe a peril. Um, and, and fear, I mean, we, we see fear in, in kind of obvious moments. Um, uh, maybe if uh, in a crisis situation, a job interview, taking an exam, um, confronting a burglar, uh, morning of a serious operation. I mean, we know fear is there. Um, what I want to suggest to you is that fear is, is bubbling under the surface in a much more pervasive way, um, day after day, uh, in our lives. Um, because whenever a, um, whenever a sort of a, a, an alternative to God bubbles up in us, a desire for something other than God bubbles up in us, uh, fear bubbles up alongside. Um, uh, with that non-God desire. Uh, because as we were thinking, the things that we really, really want uh, are associated with the things that we really, really fear. Now, does all of that matter? Well, I think it does matter because I think, and um, uh, maybe you know, you've already been thinking about this, fear gets in the way. F fear stops us from doing things. Um, um, it both interferes with our godliness um, and it also interferes with our ability to love. Um, so th let, me, let me throw you a few examples um, of that. Um, uh, one example would be f the way that, for some of us, fear can get in the way of us disagreeing with somebody. Um, sometimes it's right to disagree. Sometimes it's right to confront. Um, but if we are so fearful of, um, of being disliked, um, we can fail to do what would be loving and godly, which would be uh, to confront someone in their error. Uh, but we don't do it, because uh, we'd rather be comfortable um, uh, than we would to confront. Um, or fear may get in the way of us saying no, uh, so that we take on more and more and more, uh, gradually increasing the amount that um, uh, we do. Um, because our desire to, to please people takes control. Um, and we uh, are unable uh, to, uh, to say no to things. We're over-eager to please, um, fearful of disappointing other people. Um, or, or what about the, the, the way that fear can get in the way of us standing up for Christ? Um, maybe that happens to us at school, uh, where uh, somebody puts us on the spot um, and says they've heard we're a Christian, uh, or asks us what we did yesterday um, on Sunday. Um, and suddenly, saying that we're a Christian believer, um, saying that we went to church, uh, feels terrifying, because fitting in and being cool is what really, really matters to us. Uh, and the fear that we'll never have any friends um, if people know I'm a Christian uh, bubbles up. Or oh, here's a funny one. Um, how about this one? Um, how, how fear can get in the way of listening to another point of view. Um, I found myself puzzling over this. See, see if you think that this uh, makes sense. Um, sometimes we can so badly want to be right and are so frightened of being wrong that we don't even listen to an alternative point of view. 
We're going to shut down something that somebody else is saying, sort of switch off from it, um, blank ourselves to it, uh, because we're so fearful uh, of being proved wrong, so fearful of looking foolish. Uh, which might mean it's possible that, that the people who seem most confident, uh, most assertive, most definite about everything, are actually some of the people most fearful, because they can't bear the idea of being corrected. The reason they won't tolerate different ideas isn't actually a passion for the truth, but a passion for being right. But enough of identifying fear um, and seeing the way fear gets in the way. Um, how does fear, uh, how can fear be combated? Um, uh, what exactly is to be done about it? Uh, well, well, here's a verse. Um, here's what we could do about it. Be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong. Right? That's it. Man or woman up and sort yourselves out. Um, that's the end of the weekend. Talk's done. No more problem. Um, but of course, I mean, you know that that would feel profoundly inadequate, wouldn't it? I mean, just, you know, that's the best that God's got for us. You know, try a bit harder. Sort yourself out, for goodness sake. Um, if that was all that God had to say for us from Scripture, we would feel shortchanged. And of course, God does have much more. Um, and uh, what I want to do over the next uh, 20 minutes or so is, is just pull out some of the, the key elements that God gives us to help us uh, to combat uh, our fears. Um, three things uh, for us to, s uh, to, to consider. Um, how fear begins... Um, how fear retreats, um, and how fear resolves. Uh, let's take, take, take the first of those, how fear begins. Now, at this point, I was going to ask you a question and ask you where fear first appears in the Bible. But John Burns has already been there already, so um, quite scary, really, all these excellent answers to my questions. Maybe you think, perhaps I don't need to give these talks at all. You're all there already. Um, so you know, where does fear first appear? Well, it does first appear um, in the garden. Um, uh, where we read that uh, Adam, um, in answer to God, you remember God comes walking in the garden in the cool of the day um, and calls out to Adam, where are you? Um, and Adam answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid uh, because I was naked and so I hid. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, well, look, that's not entirely unreasonable, is it? I mean, you know, being naked is a bit awkward. Um, and, um, you know, who wouldn't be afraid about suddenly being caught by somebody when you're completely naked? Only the point is that Adam has always been naked. Uh, he was naked all along. Um, nakedness only became a problem after the fall. Something shifted about what he desired. Something shifted about who he was, and that made a difference. To, uh, to Adam and his fears. Uh, and we find the roots of that just a little bit earlier in the chapter. Um, when speaking about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the serpent says to Eve, um, God knows that when you eat from this tree, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So you see, here is what is capturing Adam and Eve's hearts. This is the thing that Adam and Eve begin to desire. They desire to be like God. They, they desire to take his place. 
not content merely to be a creature, not content simply to be dependent, to be under God's rule. They aspire to take control. They want to, to, to run their own lives. They want to make their own rules. God says, don't eat this fruit. You'll die if you do that. And they say, no, 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 no. Um, I will eat this fruit. That, that's God's rule, don't eat this fruit. My rule is I will eat this fruit. They want to be in charge. Um, so the original sin, uh, if you like, and the pattern for all sin um, is that we make ourselves big. I am the rule maker and we make God small. His rules don't matter. Not his rule but mine, not him but me. Um, and do you see that that is the point at which fear appears. When I have become big and God has become small. Of course, God isn't really small. Uh, God doesn't change at all. It is my perception of him that has shifted. Now, I mentioned earlier on um, one of the, the scariest um, experiences that I think I know, um, which is obsessive-compulsive disorder. Um, it's a very, very scary thing uh, to experience OCD. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, it's also a lot commoner than we think. Uh, affects lots of people, but many don't ever seek help with it. In obsessive-compulsive disorder, y you fear some catastrophic event. Um, you might fear getting ill, uh, which is the example I used earlier on, and, and therefore um, you're terrified of being exposed uh, to germs. Or, or you might feel some cap you might fear some catastrophic accident, um, and that might lead you to obsess about turning off gas taps, uh, removing electric plugs in your house, um, and that becomes the focus of your obsessive, compulsive behaviour. Or, or you might fear being robbed, um, and so you obsess about um, locking the door, um, and you can't leave the house without checking and checking and checking the door over and over again, um, time after time after time. Or it could be the same with your car door, um, and you keep needing to check that you really have locked it. Um, what all of those um, experiences have in common, and, and at, at its worst, obsessive-compulsive disorder can be completely debilitating, um, uh, sort of dr draw life almost to, to, to a grinding halt. But what all those fears have in common is that something awful may be going to happen um, and I am capable of stopping it and I must therefore stop it. Um, a conviction that if I, if I just check carefully enough or if I avoid rigorously enough, I will be able to prevent this tragedy. I will be able to keep things safe. It is within my power. And because it's within my power, I must do it. Because it would be terrible to allow this cat catastrophe to take place, um, knowing that I could have prevented it and I didn't. Do you see? I mean, you can imagine how terrifying that is um, to anticipate some catastrophe um, and to feel that if you're not careful enough, if you don't check rigorously enough, uh, if, if you don't um, monitor carefully enough, 
this could happen. But of course the point is that you can't. Because we're not finally in control in that kind of way. We're, we're not powerful and capable and competent enough to take control of the future. So it's not within our compass to do so. Um, it, 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 we never have had that power. We never will have. Why? Well, because we're not God. Now, that kind of... Um, that, that kind of misperception of our own capacity is particularly evident um, in obsessive-compulsive disorder. Um, imagining that I'm capable of something that I'm not actually capable of, and then feeling overwhelmed by the burden of responsibility that it brings with us. But, but, but actually, the, the same kind of fear I is there in, in, in different forms, slightly milder ways in all of us. Um, let me go for a different example, just in case you're, you're feeling that's um, OCDs well outside your reign of experience. Um, um, for the men, no, that's, that's not fine. Let me let me re rephrase that. That's too dangerous. Um, um, th th think of think of two kind of examples. Um, you could think of um, yeah, some sort of purchase you're going to make. Some sort of um, oh, so so what I did re so not not long ago, a few months back, I bought a new mobile phone. Okay. Now, um, how does it go when I try and buy myself a new mobile phone? I, I go into overdrive. Um, I spend hours sort of, you know, trawling through kind of mobilephone.com or uh, getyourbestdeal.com or, you know, whatever it is, review after review, reading about all these different sorts of phones, uh, looking through all the specs, um, puzzling over uh, the new devices, looking at the different prices and deals, on and on and on it goes. Um, and, and even as I'm doing it, I'm thinking to myself, this is ridiculous. You know, for goodness sake, just buy a phone, for goodness sake. Um, but something in me can't do it. I go on checking and checking and, and seeing, you know, look at this deal, look at that. Oh, no, wait a minute. Well, that's got far more megabytes than the one. And, and on and on. And now, now, why am I doing that? Um, well, it's out of this kind of misplaced conviction that if I just research carefully enough, if I just read enough websites, I will finally be able to buy the perfect mobile phone. You know, and I will be able to be reassured that I have got the best deal. Again, it's the same spirit of omnipotence, um, of, of being all-powerful, or omniscience, being all-knowing that I will be able to gather enough data until I am a, an all-knowing man capable of the perfect decision. And I'm not, cap I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not satisfied with less than that. That's what I aspire to. Now, maybe that doesn't do it for you. Maybe you're not, you know, you're not into mobile phones. But you know, I, th there'll be something else. Um, maybe it's choosing the very best holiday. Um, or getting just the right colour uh, for your redecoration of your kitchen. Um, you know, there will be something that, you know, I'm sure I can just get the right information. I'm sure I can make the right choice. Um, and we obsess about it because we fear um, not being perfect. And we are convinced that we are capable. But of course we can't. 
um, because God is omniscient. God knows everything. We don't and we never will. Our knowledge is always flawed. Our wisdom is always limited. We're finite. We can't know everything. We can't do everything. Um, and that kind of makes sense um, of the way that uh, Jesus chooses to put us in our place. Now, if the first thing we've seen is, is how fear begins by us making ourselves big um, and making God small, um, now see how fear retreats um, when we make God big again and ourselves small. Um, I mentioned Luke 12 before, a great chapter for thinking about worry and anxiety. Um, and um, uh, it, it's a passage we referred to a bit ago because it's the passage where Jesus tells us not to worry. Um, but just notice the way in which he does that, the basis on which he tells us not to worry. Um, Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life. Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to your life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Do, do you see how simultaneously this is, this is a, a, a pretty crushing put-down and a glorious comfort? Do you see how it's th those two things at the same time? See what Jesus is doing? He's putting us in our place. For goodness sake, do you not realize? You, you can't even add a single hour to your life. You can't do that tiny little thing, just increasing your, uh, your life by one hour. You can't do that. You see how limited you are, how incapable you are. So, therefore, get yourself in proportion. Stop imagining that you're somebody you're not. Because if you will go on imagining you're somebody you're not, you're going to scare yourself that way. But get yourself back in proportion, and actually it's very comforting. Fear retreats when God gets big and I get small again. Um, see these challenging verses from uh, earlier in the chapter. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that can do no more. But I'll show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after your body has been killed, has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. That's pretty blunt and to the point, isn't it? But notice who he's talking to. He's not talking to people who are resisting him and rebelling against him so that he's threatening them with judgment. You know, come under my rule, because otherwise you're going to get it in the neck. No, he's talking to his friends. He's talking to his followers. Because he understands that his followers need to get this as well. And the same theme, the same idea, um, is, uh, is picked up in, in many places where Jesus is telling us to get things in proper proportion. There is a God whose power far exceeds even the most powerful of human rulers. And he's the one you should fear. Um, but this God is not um, an impersonal force. Um, this God is a God who intimately cares for you. Um, so we see that in, uh, in the, next, the, the very next verses that follow. Having talked to them, you know, there in verses 4 and 5 about, um, about hell and, uh, and fear of hell, 
the very next verse, Jesus says, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. Picks up the same idea uh, later on in the chapter in verse 24. Consider the ravens. They don't sow or reap. They've no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. How much more valuable are you than birds? You see the drift uh, of Jesus' teaching. Um, if you haven't got it yet, see it again uh, in this one about wildflowers. Consider how the wildflowers grow. They don't labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If this is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, you little faith? See, you get that recurring theme. How much more? How much more? There is a God who oversees everything. Uh, he looks after the fate of sparrows. Um, he feeds ravens. Uh, he clothes flowers so they're beautiful. If God does all of that for that part of his creation, how much more will he care for you? The pinnacle of his creation. So, verse 29, stop worrying. Don't set your heart, even on the simple, even on the most basics, don't set your heart on the most basic things of what you eat or what you drink. Don't worry about it. The pagan world, the non-Christian world, the, the, the unbelieving world worries about such things. But your father knows that you need them. When you worry like that, you're behaving like functional orphans. You're behaving as if there is no father in heaven who loves you. That's what you're behaving like when you worry like that. So if you haven't got a Father in heaven who is all-powerful and is all-loving and is committed to you, when you worry, you've, you've rubbed him out. You've erased him. You've, you've taken him out of the picture. Uh, and now you're behaving like you're an orphan with no one looking after you. It is intriguing, isn't it, how um, children are simultaneously... Uh, uh, subject to absolute terror. Uh, you think about a little child. I mean, they get really, really frightened, don't they, um, by things. But, but simultaneously, children are very, very easy to reassure. So I mean, you, you can imagine the scene, can't you? Um, you know, little Johnny or little Jemima kind of, you know, awakes in the midst of a nightmare, screaming in abject terror, um, and. Um, Mum or dad rushes down the corridor, swoops them up, uh, pulls them close, and says, shh, 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 it's all right, it's all right. Dad's here now, mum's here now, it's okay, don't cry. And gloriously, wonderfully, they stop. I mean, how good is that? I mean, it, it's bizarre, isn't it? Or, I mean, just so easily reassured. I mean, it's a bit like sort of, you know, Little Johnny or Jemima falls down, grazes their knee. Daddy, a kiss it better. I mean, where did that idea come from? I mean, what a sort of peculiar idea, isn't it? A little kiss on the knee. Oh, better. Gone. Pain disappeared. Yeah, but it does. It works like that. Because w what is a little child like? A little child has this sense of their mum or dad, of, of this sort of glorious um, 
sort of demigod-like status, don't they? You know, mum and dad can do anything, solve anything, create anything, do absolutely anything that is needed to make everything better. That's the way we think about our parents. And it is an uncomfortable and slightly unnerving moment when we begin to realize, no, <laughs> not so. I mean, I mean, maybe you can remember that point in your, in your life um, when suddenly you realize mum and dad are not capable like that. Actually, there's stuff that they can't do. The, um, a few weeks, uh, a few months ago, I was on a um, uh, church weekend away for the church where my, Tom, my, where my son Tom attends. Um, and um, my quip there was that um, if in the afternoon uh, my son Tom got his desire and I turned out on the football pitch um, to, play, to play a game of football alongside him, that the flawed and failing and slightly decaying nature of his father would become instantly evident to him uh, as if it wasn't already. And that did prove to be exactly the case. Um, it, it's what we like. We, we grow up with this idea of our parents being omnipotent um, gradually um, and sometimes slightly unnervingly we realize that's not the case. But with God, we never reach that point. That's Jesus' point. That's why Jesus doesn't say, look, the pagan world runs after all this stuff, convinced it needs to get it for itself. But your father knows that you need this. So trust him. Be sure of him. He really is omnipotent. He really does care for you. He's had Jesus go to a cross for you. How did you think he wouldn't look after you? How would you think he would ever abandon you? So trust him. Be confident in him. Seek his kingdom. Put him first. Confident that, that everything else that he knows is good for you, everything else that he wants for you, will be given to you as well. Do you see how the greatness of God, knowing the greatness of God, is such an antidote to fear? And we catch a little bit of that in, uh, in Ruth chapter 2. Um, um, Ruth is facing lots of threat, isn't she? Single woman um, in uh, a foreign land, um, alone um, in a male environment as she goes out to glean um, in the field. Uh, on the brink of starvation. Um, and you remember what Boaz says to her? May the Lord repay you for what you've done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Ruth has got it right, in other words. In her decision to come, uh, to, to travel uh, back home to Bethlehem, or back to Naomi's home in Bethlehem, uh, Ruth has got it right because she has demonstrated her confidence in Naomi's God. Uh, and here Boaz captures it as, as a picture of, of like the God of Israel is like this huge mother bird stretching out her wings. And Ruth, Ruth just like a tiny chick, tucked up underneath. Again, it's the same image, the vastness of God. Strong, capable, able, um, and Ruth, tiny, um, and therefore safe uh, under his care. 
So come to our third heading. Uh, we've seen how fear begins when we make ourselves big and God small. We've seen how fear retreats um, by making God big again, remembering who he really is um, and putting ourselves in our place. Um, then think finally how fear resolves, um, which is by recognizing that this God who is so omnipotent, all-powerful, all-knowing, this God is the God who is present with us. can't tell you how many times that th the Bible makes this link between th the presence of God with us and therefore the absence of fear. Um, over and over and over again, God urges us to rid ourselves of fear on the basis that God is with us. Um, just, just look at a few places um, where this is so. Um, I'm going to read them all out. Um, Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I'll fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Psalm 23. Speaking to Isaac, don't be afraid, for I am with you. I will bless you. Do not be afraid of the people of the land, because we will devour them. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Don't be afraid of them. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified. Moses says, as the people are, are about to enter the land for the second time. Don't be afraid or terrified because of them, for the Lord your God goes with you. Right. To Joshua, do not be afraid, do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. As the people are threatened by Assyria, do not be afraid or discouraged because of the king of Assyria and the vast army with him, for there is a greater power with us than with him. Psalmist, the Lord is with me. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? See the contrast again? If the Lord is with me, what do I want to fear mere mortals? How small mere mortals are. The Lord is with me. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear, your God will come. A bit later in Isaiah, so do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. Jeremiah, do not be afraid of the king of Babylon, whom you now fear. Do not be afraid of him, declares the Lord, for I am with you. My spirit remains among you. Do not fear. And then Jesus, um, part of John's gospel that we've ripped out quite recently. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. And do not be afraid. But would you see, just as we finish, would you see that these reassurances are only reassurances if God is big. He needs to dwarf the Babylonian army in order for reassurance in the face of the Babylonians to be any reassurance at all. Don't, don't be frightened of the Babylonian army, for I am with you. 
It, it is only if we will expand our vision of God to its proper size so that we see him for who he really is, that comfort comes through an awareness of his presence with us. If, if we let our understanding, our thinking about God shrink, um, and it constantly will. That's that, remember, that's what sin does. That's where we began um, uh, this session, thinking about the way um, in which we shrink God down. I become big, big God, I'm small. If we let that happen, God's no comfort at all. He has to take his proper size, his proper scale. And then he's a comfort to us. But finally, as we finish, um, please notice that God seems to understand that fear and faith will exist side by side. Be because I want to suggest to you that, that th th these many, many occurrences of, of, the, of the statement, do not be afraid, is, is not so much a, a command saying you must repent, I think it's much more of a, a, a promise that calls us to believe. So that do not be afraid, do not worry, um, it is more of a call to say, I am with you. I am for you. Trust me. Be comforted by me, because I'm here for you. Don't be afraid is more like the comforting word of the father or mother to the child. Don't be afraid. It's all right. I'm here. Shush now. It's, it's that kind of a statement that God makes to us when he calls us not to be afraid. Remember who I am. Remember that I'm here. And be comforted. Um, later tonight, we're going to, to think more about the detail of that experience um, as we pick out Ruth's battle with fears and her demonstration of courage in, uh, uh, in Ruth chapter 3. And we'll use that as a worked example this evening, um, uh, particularly of risk-taking um, in the face uh, of our fears. Um, we need to stop because uh, we're going to get to lunch soon. Why don't I pray for us? Uh, Lord God, you, uh, you speak into our fearfulness uh, with wonderful words of encouragement. Uh, you tell us that uh, you are with us, uh, that uh, you, uh, you go with us um, into every day, uh, that um, uh, we need not be troubled, uh, we need not be afraid. And we, we see how that is dependent upon us uh, understanding uh, your greatness, your glory, your power, your might. Um, uh, expand our sense uh, of all those things, please, um, so that uh, the comfort and reassurance that uh, you speak into our lives, the ability to overcome our fears so that they don't get in the way uh, of us loving people well. They don't get in the way um, of us um, uh, uh, failing to do good that we ought to do. Um, we pray, Father, that uh, uh, 
uh, your comfort to us uh, would be more real, uh, more evident, uh, so that we might live uh, more fully to your glory. And these things we pray in Christ's name.